Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and promote public education. And this week, uh, we have some very interesting news for you. It appears that NAPLAN, that uh, testing of our children, uh, really doesn't show up any real differences between public and private schools in Australia. So one wonders just exactly where all of those billions of dollars, private and public, are going in the private sector and what the real reason is for having them at all. But uh, we've got a press release, 9.20 on this, and Oliver's going to be telling us about the NAPLAN analysis. Sorrell and Dale are going to discuss with us some very interesting information about just where our teachers, our parents, and above all, our children are at with the COVIDness times. We are still in a time of play, even though our politicians have decided to let it rip. If you're a parent, if you're a child, if you were a teacher, just what would you be thinking right now should be done? And it is a big problem. So we'll be discussing this. And uh, we've got some material from both the ABC and the Australian Education Union on this. We've also got our usual American uh, news uh, from the Diana Ravitch blog, and um, Sorrel's going to tell us about that. And we have, to, to complete our program, our great state schools. So let's get on with the show, shall we? Oliver will be telling you about the Lapland analysis in our press release 920. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jane. According to reports in the Brisbane Times, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, a major study of NAPLAN results over time found only slight differences in scores between the three school sectors, and these differences disappeared once a student's family background was considered. An analysis of students' improvement between years three and nine also found no variation between the private and public sector, thus undermining misconceptions of private schools adding value to student outcomes. The researchers found. The research team, led by Sally Larson from the University of New England, 
looked at the NAPLAN results of more than 1,500 students who were involved in the national testing program in years three, five, seven, and nine. They found no difference in average achievement between the three school sectors in primary school, except that year five students in public schools performed slightly better in numeracy than those in Catholic schools. Year seven and nine students at independent schools were slightly ahead, but their apparent advantage disappeared after including SES, socio-educational status, said the report. Results such as these highlight that school, school sector is not a strong predictor of basic skills, uh, basic skills achievement and suggests that it is the social background and academic ability of children who attend private schools, which support the appearance of better quality schooling. Dr. Larson said the researchers wanted to explore whether private schools improve student outcomes, given that plan is billed as a way to evaluate the extent to which schools contribute to their students' literacy and numeracy skills. A student's background, particularly their parents' education levels, is a strong predictor of their academic achievement. However, many parents do not take this into account when they look at the strong academic results from high-fee private schools. The study's findings can reassure parents that it's okay if you can't afford private schooling, Dr. Larson said. The largest predictor of academic achievement in NAPLAN is previous achievement in NAPLAN. If we accept NAPLAN does assess something about the basic achievement of students, then the school sector is not going to make a large amount of difference. Yes, well, there were quite a few comments. Um, but um, first of all, I'd like to mention Angelo Gabrielatis, what he had to say, and also uh, just what uh, the dogs think about all of this. Angelo, in Twitter, had this comment. Apart from the exclusionary enrolment policies of private schools, the biggest difference between the sectors is that public schools remain underfunded at only plus or minus 90% of the government agreed minimum funding levels necessary for all kids to achieve their best. Well, Angelo, the dogs believe, could have added that some private schools also receive more than 100% of those funding levels from taxpayer funds. And this all goes to prove that our public schools are doing a marvellous job on the shoestring budget, while private schools are a waste of money. But uh, there were at least um, 170 very interesting comments uh, to the uh, Brisbane Times article. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, there was many, many comments, but I'll just pick a choice few. Glenn says that uh, NAPLAN does not measure self-entitlement, and so it understates the outcomes from the private school sector. Uh, Statsman says uh, this study shows similar results to other studies of private versus public that have been done in the past. No doubt the large marketing departments of private schools will be all be scurrying around looking at angles to discredit the study, spreading disinformation in the process, all for a dollar. Public schools all the way. Let's work to reduce inequality, not increase it. Better funding for public systems is essential. Uh, and Lisa says, what are the three school sectors? 
Uh, they don't say, isn't it just private or public? Well, no, Lisa. We in Australia have, are in the unique position of having three school sectors all funded by the government, and they are the Catholic school sector, the independent school sector, and the public school sector. And the public school sector is the only one that is legislated to never receive 100% of the school resourcing standard. Okay, so uh, Mig says, uh, and the reason we give so much public treasure to the private school sector is exactly what? Uh, and, uh, yeah, the Taswesian says, uh, the way I read this is, if you've got an intelligent child, you have an intelligent child. An interesting comment from a retired uni lecturer in my social circle was that it's the private school kids that find uni the hardest as they have to motivate themselves to do the work. And uh, Linda asked about whether or not they did a gender analysis of these findings because from research she did 10 years ago, that's where the difference was lying. Uh, Michael said, all teachers are trained in the same institutions and are required to have the same qualifications. All programs are devised in line with the same documents and guidelines. All schools strive to achieve the best outcomes for their charges. My observation is that a lot of private schools congratulate themselves on having bright, motivated students who come from families that value education and provide cultural opportunity. It is largely the students and their families who get the results that private schools parade in December. It's a frustrating myth that private schools are better, and it is one that will continue to endure as long as families buy it, metaphorically and literally. And then uh, HJ got straight to the matter and said, private schools offer the X factor of prestige and career connections. And uh, yeah, Rob says, yes, as most parents who send their kids to public schools know, uh, public school A or B is exactly the same as private school A or B, just minus the dollar, minus the money. Um, much better to use the money for tertiary or vocational education. It just shows yet again that you need to think very carefully about the perceived outcomes you want for your child by sending them to a private school. Private schools are just a marketing machine playing on the fears and aspirations of confused parents. Single-sex private schools, which are mostly Anglo, white and privileged, restrict the opportunity for students to build and develop the social skills they will need later in life. And, yeah, Al says, so what it boils down to is that private schools are just another status symbol. Uh, Jimmy says that private schools should be banned. They do nothing but entrench inequality. Selected public schools too, banned. There are also there are so many opportunities in this world for the so-called cream to rise to the top. You don't need to facilitate it at school. Uh, then uh, Daniel says these comparisons are are irrelevant. Kids are sent to private schools mainly for the networks of immeasurable immeasurable value in business and the professions. And then, well, says private schools are generally better because facilities, teachers and toilets are not old and worn out. But, you know, that's not doesn't make them better. It just makes them better funded. Uh, perhaps says wasting funding on idiots is a great sport played by families and government. Quite a selection. 
And they're mainly, and they're mainly, they're mainly pro-public school, aren't they? Which I always find very interesting. Uh, you, you just wonder what our politicians are thinking about when they prefer in funding the private sector. It's interesting. Uh, Professor Antti Antihoon said that uh, it'd be interesting to study the entitlement effect of private schooling and whether it hinders private students post-secondary school uh, and that he remembers encountering wealthy, privately educated peers during first year uni in 1983 and many held the assumption that they'd be the top of the class and it visibly upset them when they discovered that assumption was unsupported by reality and underlying dysthymia plagued many of them throughout their undergraduate years. Regardless of educational outcomes, the whole private schooling phenomenon in Australia introduces an artificial and, in my opinion, unhealthy division within our young people. I wish it were otherwise. And then Izzy says, bravo, public schools consistently do much more with much less. Nevertheless, it is rare to see credit given where it's due. This article raises questions about the gross funding inequity between public and independent schools. What possible justification can there be for governments overfunding the independent sector when clearly those schools should also be doing much more with much less? Our tax dollars must be put to better use than propping up privilege for no gain. And as you say, Jean, many of them, it just goes on and on. And with this much groundswell uh, in support of public schools, you'd, you'd think there'd be more people uh, outraged. But I dare say these are actually people who are involved in school communities, especially public school communities, because you don't hear this being reported in the mainstream media. Uh, because it does go against the status quo. The politicians want to be able to fund the schools their own kids go to and have no one make any fuss about it. Oh, well, of course, uh, also the advertising dollars because uh, there, sometimes you get whole whole books of glossies that come in the, in the age or the Australian. Um, yeah. A bit like domain, you know, it's quite extraordinary the amount of money that is spent on advertising for the private education sector right And the amount of work they do on NAPLAN to make their schools look good. Buff said that uh, he worked in a Catholic school where considerable time was spent teaching students how to prepare for NAPLAN by having them practice past exams. The focus was to improve the school's rank performance. And uh, they went on to say, I made my all my children attend state schools. Well, uh, the, the problem with these uh, tests is that that does tend to happen in the private sector, which means limiting of the education that the children receive. But um, it's um, it's very interesting stuff, isn't it? Yeah. But we'll have a bit of a break now and come back to talk about the times of plague. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people. And the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally, 
We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is. And we fight for it every day. And we resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. To renew your subscription, make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5 pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, we are listening to the Dogs Program and we hope that you're still with us. Uh, we are living in very strange times, in the times of plague when our leaders have opened everything up or partially opened things up. So what should parents and teachers and students do? There are mixed messages in the last week, on the Tuesday, the 11th of January, on, in the Australian Financial Review, we're told that an expert is saying that some states should delay school restart. And that's what's happening in Queensland with um, the Premier up there saying they're not going to start until February 7th. Uh, so should that be what we're doing down here in Victoria, one wonders. The next day, however, on the 12th, we have a very interesting article. Uh, teens head back to school with waning immunity because a lot of our teenagers, 16 plus, have had their, um, their first or even their second uh, vaccination some months ago. So they should perhaps be having boosters. And uh, where is going to be the testing for them if they feel that they have symptoms? We haven't got enough tests, apparently. And as well as that, we have uh, in the age uh, the same kind of thing. Should we or shouldn't we uh, be going back to remote learning? And uh, there are calls to shelve remote learning because our children are suffering mental problems because of the long time that they have spent in the last two years away from their peers at school. So just exactly what should be we be thinking about? The ABC ran a very interesting program in the last week and Sorrel is going to tell us about that. Thanks, Jean. Uh, so COVID vaccines for ages 5 to 11 start January 10th, but can schools open safely in the shadow of Omicron? Sarah has worked as a teacher for decades and loves her job, but this year something has shifted. She's anxious about returning to the classroom in 2022. I just can't get a picture in my head of how schools can be safe, says Sarah, not her real name, who teaches language to around 120 primary age children each day at a South Australian public school. With a significant number of her students from disadvantaged backgrounds, 
Sarah, now in her 60s, healthy and triple vaccinated, knows that effective teaching relies on deep connection with these kids and that that doesn't happen from a distance. Being a primary school teacher is all about being a close contact, down on the ground with the little ones, in a circle, on the floor, being right there. It's an essential part of the teaching process, she says. It's about showing your face, making a child know, I'm looking at you, I'm talking to you, I'm making you feel as if I'm really engaging with your learning. It's not a scenario that responds well to masks and social distancing. Add in kids with language or other social cultural differences and that close empathetic contact just can't be replaced. With less than a month to go until millions of Australian children are due to head back to campus, Prime Minister Scott Morrison is adamant that there will be no wiggle room on dates. Many families and educators like Sarah feel like they have been left in an information vacuum. The level of anxiety over what lies ahead is palpable. Even with the vaccination rollout for 5 to 11-year-olds, which begins today, has done little to calm rising concern. Hit up a few groups on social media and chat amongst the parents and teachers. Their fears centre that the classroom in the country will quickly become a mini COVID super spreader event once the children are back on campus at the end of the month. Does anyone know when it will be safe to go back to work? One teacher posted, are you thinking a staggered return to reduce the sudden wave of COVID? Is anybody else feeling exasperated that the government is not addressing the fact that our young kids will not have access to vaccines in time for the school reopening? Wrote a mother concerned that her daughter will have only one dose. The transmissibility of Omicron, which has seen official records of daily infections surge into the tens of thousands in several states, does make it feel inevitable that COVID that COVID will spread in a school setting that will define the start of 2022. Um, we actually have a clip from the ABC that will now be inserted uh, where the kids that are going back to school are going to talk about how they feel about being vaccinated. Miranda Stott is one month shy of her 12th birthday. She's among hundreds of thousands of 5 to 11-year-olds in Queensland able to get a COVID vaccine from Monday. It's something she's looking forward to ahead of starting high school. I'm really excited to be able to get the vaccine because it just mean it just make, you know, everything so much easier with with not being so worried about you know, catching it. The jabs will be administered at state-run clinics, GPs and pharmacies, ramping up the state's rollout program. So not all pharmacies and GPs will be ready on the 10th. Uh, We've got about a third of the pharmacies coming on board uh, next uh, Monday, but then we'll have another third coming on board in the following fortnight. It'll also add to the demands on GPs already feeling the strain. We've got the triple whammy. We've got a lot of COVID cases in the community. We are also doing adult booster doses and we're also going to start the 5 to 11-year-olds. Young children will receive a smaller dose of the Pfizer vaccine and currently they'll have to wait eight weeks before they can have a second dose, meaning they won't be fully vaccinated when school returns at the end of the month. It has parents like Miranda's mum, Melanie, considering keeping her daughter home for the start of Term 1. All of the messaging from Queensland Health from the top down has been, you will be okay with this illness if you are vaccinated. And yet 
we haven't had that opportunity for 5 to 11-year-olds to be vaccinated. That's really unfair. Many of those concerned are looking to state and national health authorities to release a plan for the new school year, but they'll have to keep waiting. Queensland Health says it's using the holidays to update the extensive planning that has already taken place and that various scenarios and models are being considered. I know parents are anxious to know what that is uh, and the states will be moving as quickly as possible and working with the Commonwealth so that we can get this framework decided and announced before the start of the school year. Experts expect mandatory mask wearing, well-ventilated classrooms, social distancing and even rapid antigen testing to be part of the return to school plan. The only way that's going to work is if the tests are provided free of charge to both students and to teachers and other staff. It's likely to be similar for childcare. I think that as much as possible, outdoors, good ventilation um, and the like, ensuring that all staff are fully vaccinated. The teachers' union says remote learning could also be back on the cards. At the moment, school's due to go back in late January. So if there's a peak in late January, what might that look like? Um, everything's on the table. A waiting game for families as the new school year looms. Rachel Riga, ABC News, Brisbane. The real question we can we should be asking is: Can schools open safely? Experts like Professor Catherine Bennett, Deakin's University Chair in Epidemiology, believes returning to school this year will be a puzzle that should draw together lessons from overseas, the science of what we know about Omicron, and advice from research compiled by AusSage, NCIRS, and the Doherty Institute. It's about trying to reduce the risk of kids being infected, but not being overly anxious, she says. It's about trying to get the balance right. Yet finding that balance is far from easy. AusSage has reported data from the UK suggesting one in 100 children with COVID required hospitalisation during the second wave and notes UK data showing between one in 20,000 and one in 50,000 cases of COVID in children is fatal. Add to that small number of kids likely to suffer from the so-called long COVID. It must be emphasised that a child's risk of death from COVID in Australia, whilst always tragic, is very rare. Statistics from the Federal Department of Health show just three children aged under 19 have passed away from COVID-19 from an estimated 137,000 cases. Nevertheless, it is prudent to consider what a picture of a safe school life this year might look like. The magic ingredient, Bennett believes, will be a nimble and flexible attitude to dial up and dial down precautions as the virus moves. Karina Powers, an occupational and environmental physician who specialises in understanding safe work environments, agrees. She adds that maintaining hybrid education models that allow children to learn from school or from home are also important to allow for periods of infection as well as an individual's family's appetite for risk. Bennett says that while COVID won't be everywhere all the time, there'll certainly be places where we've got high infection rates with Omicron to manage. This is the problem. The problem, believe Bennett and Powers, is that Australia is nowhere near close enough to being in control. Vaccination from the 5 to 11 age cohort is only just underway. Access to testing is in chaos. Masking in schools remains controversial and ventilating classrooms is not even a conversation some states are having. 
For a pandemic disease, your best chance at controlling the spread is to use every level of control you can, which includes everything from vaccination and safe indoor air right down to personal protective equipment, says Powers, a member of OzSage, a network of experts on COVID-19. A structure that can offer part of the answers lies in ensuring schools apply layers of protection designed to block infection and catch cases early, a concept known as the hierarchy of controls, Powers says, which underpins the vaccine plus strategy advocated by the UK. Here's what a safe school strategy might look like. Bennett right now says it's a time to focus on vaccination and argues that with children 5 to 11 eligible from today, getting vaccinated sooner rather than later means the safer schools will be. The data we've just got out of the UK shows that even the first dose can make a difference in reducing symptomatic infection, she says. But it will take a while to get the benefit of that. Bennett explains that the research is showing that two weeks on from the first dose, there is around a 20% protection from infection. It might not seem much, she notes, but argues that a population level, a 20% risk reduction is significant. Building her argument for vaccination, Bennett urges not to underestimate the importance of a child's parents being vaccinated and boosted as a bulwark spread against the disease. If parents are boosted, it will mean less children getting exposed at home and bringing it to school, she says. So if those things come together, boosters for adults, double vax for teenagers and first doses for young children, then hopefully we'll see ourselves in a different position over January. While Bennett emphasizes 2022 is going to be different, she remains steadfast. I think there'll be a bit of a reset and we'll have to do all schools in a different way, but the aim absolutely should be to keep kids in school, not to close school as your first response. As well as vaccinating, testing is a method they will use to ensure schools can be safe. The 2021 scenario in which our schools or classrooms are closed down at the moment, a child or teacher test positive is impossible this year. With so much COVID circulating, it would be unworkable. Bennett supports a refocus on the UK system of the test to stay, a strategy that encourages wide testing with a view to keep as many children as possible in the school. It was, it was floated for New South Wales last year, but not widely implemented, partly because of rat supply. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has implied rat tests will be a part of the return to school plan when it's made public. So how would this work in practice? Imagine a 10-year-old boy, let's call him James, has a big sister who tested positive. Here is a scenario of what could happen next, Bennett advises. James, his sister, and his immediate family would go into quarantine and be tested. But back in the classroom, although the boy is absent, teaching could continue as usual. The only exception to that is if it was feared that James was in the classroom whilst potentially infectious, a likely situation. But unlike 2021, when the whole class would be quarantined and PCR tests done, in 2022, a more likely structure would be to rapid test everyone in the class. Assuming results were negative, lessons could continue as normal. If the school wants another layer of protection, children who are likely to have been in close contact with James could be asked to take a rapid test every morning before arriving at school. There won't be so much of a focus on big quarantine periods, says Bennett. It might be more retested the screening period, but as I said, you'd only be managed, I think, you know, in much a more focused way. 
Bennett adds that waiting for a known infection in an environment of high COVID prevalence, however, is not going to be proactive enough. The 2022 gold standard should be to implement a policy of random screening in schools. The risk of teachers becoming exposed or infected, of course, which delivers a deeper dilemma. Whilst one or two children missing from class can be managed, perhaps with a hybrid home learning model, if teachers are taken out of the equation, the whole class suffers. If you'd like more information on this article, you can find it on the ABC website. And we now have a clip from the ABC website about children getting vaccinated. A very exciting day today to finally have vaccination available for our kids aged 5 to 11, something I think that we've been waiting for really since the very beginning of the pandemic, particularly here at the Children's Hospital. And as you say, there's been mixed experiences so far, absolutely, when it comes to people actually getting their bookings secured. But what we are also hearing is that that capacity is increasing every day, even across the day, as more and more GPs come on board, pharmacies on board and state-based hubs across the nation also. So Really, our message for parents and families out there is to be a bit patient. We know it's hard, but continue to check back and you will find that over the coming days, availability will be there for you to get your child vaccinated before that really important return to school. There have been some surveys out looking at what parents feel about getting their children vaccinated. What's that data found? Yeah, we certainly found that around a third of parents have some concerns that their child might feel anxious or distressed when it comes to the experience of the vaccination. So really important to actually chat with your child about what they can expect without alarming them and remembering that as parents, if we're a bit fearful or concerned, sometimes that really flows onto our kids. There's some really great information on the Royal Children's Hospital website and also Australian Government website about how to have those conversations with your kids. Just briefly, how, how would you have that planning... conversation? How would you have that conversation if you were talking to me? I'm, I'm the child, I'm your 11-year-old, and I'm a bit worried. Yeah. Tell me how, what I should be thinking. Absolutely. So the first thing to do is ask, what do you know about vaccines? Have you heard about the vaccine? What do you think it's going to be like? And what are you worried about? And often you'll find that your kids actually know quite a lot about a vaccine. They're pretty savvy when it comes to COVID and vaccination after all that we've been through. And they may not be so concerned. If they've had a vaccine in the past that they can remember, for kids in this age group, that might be the flu vaccine. They'll know a bit what it's like. If they're not sure, then telling them it's going to feel like a little jab or a pinch. It's going to be over very quickly and it's really important to help your body learn how to fight off COVID and stop it getting sick if you do actually catch the virus. So that's talking to children. What about when you're talking to parents who, who aren't sure or don't want their child to be vaccinated? I think another survey found one in four probably won't get their child vaccinated. I don't know how up-to-date that data is, but how do you talk to parents? Yeah, there is definitely some hesitancy out there. ISCAN parents are absolutely understandably concerned sometimes. They want to make sure they're making a safe decision for their child. And the main concerns that those parents do hold are about whether the vaccine has been tested enough for safety and whether it works well enough to be worth having. So having a really clear and informed conversation with a trusted healthcare professional, so that might be your GP, it might be the pharmacist, it might be the immunisation provider at the hub, about your concerns if you're one of those parents thinking about things is really important. And absolutely we can reassure you that there is very comprehensive safety data and efficacy data when it comes to vaccination in this age group and across the world now here in Australia obviously we've been a few months behind our you know northern hemisphere 
people and we've actually seen vaccination in over 5 million children in this age group and there have not been any concerning safety signals when it comes to worries about side effects. Just finally... There are, of course, some common side effects that kids might have, so important to... Um, make your child and parents aware of that sore arm, feeling a bit tired, perhaps feeling a bit out of sorts or a headache. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs program on 3CR. And uh, we've been talking about uh, children and parents and teachers and what's happening with the time of plague. And it seems that the way forward in the minds of um, perhaps our betters is um, testing, rapid testing. Well, let's just hope that our great and fearless leaders have got enough tests for the testing and let's hope that the tests, the rapid tests, uh, actually give the right answer, whether it's negative or positive. But um, it seems as if to date the testing procedures have um, been rather chaotic. But in this time of chaos, our teachers and particularly our public school teachers have learned to adapt. And we've got a very interesting article from the Australian Education Union. Uh, over to Oliver, adapting to change. Thank you, Jean. Trundle Central School is especially upbeat on the last day of Term 3, when its students were able to return to face-to-face -face classes after five weeks of lockdown, even if only for one day. The students were excited to see each other, as so many don't have the internet or mobile phone service at home to connect with remote learning says Emily Price, an agriculture, mathematics and science teacher at the school. During lockdown, Price used games to help teach maths and science concepts. For maths, she used an online resource for students to build two spinners, one with numbers and the other with a mathematical operation such as addition or multiplication. She gave them pronumeral to work with too. They had to write the word phrase or the algebraic expression that was created. For example, one spinner records a 106 and the other shows addition, and they were given a pronumeral for, uh, for example, creating 106 plus G. For a science activity, students picked flowers from their gardens, placing the petals in hot water to drain the color, then used the remaining liquid to test whether household substances such as toothpaste or vinegar were acid or alkaline, says Price. They observed the color change to predict if the substance was an acid or a base. It wasn't as accurate as it would be in our science lab, but it was very useful for the chemical reaction unit, chemical reactions unit they were learning. The school's learning and support teaching mentored Price on collecting and analyzing student data, and she kept her math classes on track during, during remote learning by writing out and color coding the steps to pay students through problems. 
I had some great feedback from students and parents. They emailed me to say the steps were easy for parents who couldn't remember algebra in their school days to follow, says Price. She has also expanded her science knowledge with online professional learning courses. One of them focused on COVID as an infectious disease in the biology unit. It was great to have topics that are so relevant now to teach my students. Learning to be flexible. It's been a topsy-turvy year. The local and regional agricultural shows were canceled due to COVID-19. So Price hasn't been able to test her students' sheep and chicken showing skills. The most important thing as a teacher is to be ready for big and small changes in our work, including the move into and out of remote learning. I might've planned an ag practical lesson, but if it rains, I have to make it a theory lesson. Or if my students struggle with particular concepts, I'll have to revisit those, even if I didn't plan to. Teachers have to be adaptable. That includes coping with what could be the second mouse plague this year for her rural district. Mice were in a lot of the classrooms, storerooms, the staff room, my desk, the students' books, and my ag equipment. They were running across the playground and sometimes found in students' bags. Primary teachers had to be very vigilant because a few kindergarten kids accidentally left their lunchboxes open and they'd find mice in with their food, Price says. Finding a positive. It might be difficult to see a silver lining when your school operations are suspended and school buildings are deep cleaned after a COVID-19 positive case. But for Justin Cronin at the ACT's Harrison School, there were some unexpected bright spots. One was the opportunity to see his students interacting with their families after Harrison School made the national news in August when the positive case was discovered. The education directorate alerted staff and families about the case five days after a lockdown was announced in the ACT, telling them to get tested and to quarantine for two weeks. Our whole school was closed down. That was a big deal for families, Cronin says. A couple days later, a nearby school became a pop-up testing clinic for the staff and families in the Harrison School community. Seeing students with their families was another piece of the puzzle to understand students better, he says. During the first week of the ACT's lockdown, students were able to tap into online learning resources created by the directorate. It was an initiative negotiated last year by the AEU to give teachers five days of pupil-free time to prepare for, for remote learning. Harrison's COVID case gave staff an extra four days to get tested and students continued to use the directorate's resources, says Brennan. The directorate had an interactive website with resources and a daily schedule for students. It was good to get that support. We were able to post links to students and support this with homeroom sessions. It was good support and it was really positive for the union to get that agreement with the education directorate, says Cronin. Easing the pressure. Cronin has learned to give both himself and his students a break as he has adjusted to the demands of remote learning. He discovered that taking a breather to reflect on a task, sometimes even taking a short walk, helped him to finish the job faster and better. Easing the pressure on his students is also paying off. Sometimes they might not want to interact with each other or refuse to turn their cameras on. I feel a bit like a video game streamer, performing, putting on a good mood and showing my personality to hopefully engage, inspire and real students in. Nonetheless, he enjoyed challenging and extending his year 10 English class as they studied Shakespeare's Macbeth. In term four, he's looking forward to running the student leadership elections for 2022. I enjoy doing the planning for the year seven and eight prefects election 
and helping the year nines who want to go for captain. They fill in a detailed form and deliver a speech or video. It's great for the school culture and positive for students to know they've got a voice in how it's run. In lockdown, Prone has not been able to play his usual competitive sports. So in his free time, he's been sketching with pencil and charcoal. I drew figures from the computer games Warcraft and Diablo, which I played growing up. I like the aesthetic of them. I find it fun and creative to draw during school holidays or lockdowns. Um, that article was by Margaret Payton. Well, thank you, uh, Oliver. That just shows you how our public school teachers are able to adapt and how clever they have been in these terrible times. Uh, but unfortunately, over in America, teachers have perhaps got an even worse time with private schools than they do here. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with Sorrel who will tell us uh, our American news. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're still listening to The Dogs program and we're here to defend and promote public education. But uh, usually we have a section on what's going on in America. And the Diane Ravage uh, blog site is of great use to us. Peter Green uh, has written a very interesting article about the charter industry and uh, what it's doing in the area of real estate. The charter industry, of course, over in, in America is the privatisation of public schools over there. And a lot of teachers and public school advocates are not happy. But over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. 
Uh, so Peter Green reports on real estate transactions in the Florida charter industry, just one transi- transaction that provides an insight into the financial interests getting rich by exploiting public dollars meant for education. Lots of millions changing hands, but nothing about children or education. This is the kind of news that makes my blood simmer, he writes. It turned up as an item in the South Florida LBJ Business Journal. The lead tells you just where we're headed. The campuses of three charter schools in Broward County were purchased for a combined $49 million by a company in Boise, Idaho, that specializes in charter school real estate investments. That says a lot. Let's look at some details. The big deal involves, well, several companies. We've got AEP Charter Renaissance. These folks sold a school that they bought back in 2017. That charter school was located in a former Target Target store in Taramac that had been bought by an investment capital group and a development group for $6.3 million. AEP Charter Renaissance bought it for $22 million. That purchase was part of a two-school deal that merited this kind of language in industry blurbs. Part of the Collier's team's successful strategy required educating prospective buyers on each individual charter management organization and nuances of each charter school, including charter terms for this asset class considered a special purpose building. This is a highly specialized asset class, which inherently requires a longer and more thorough phase of due diligence, noted Collier's senior vice president and education services group member, Achikam Yogev. Because of the complexities, charter schools have traditionally sold individually and rarely as a portfolio, but the continued interest in this asset class has paved the way for more creative strategies and more complex deals being done on behalf of our clients. By industry, of course, I mean real estate and investment, because none of this has to do with education. At any rate, AEP Charter Renaissance just sold that school, which has somehow shrunk to 85,233 square feet for 26 million. AEP Charter Renaissance is managed by Charter School Capital, whose CEO and co-founder, Stuart Ellis, is based in Portland. They serve charter school leaders, back office business service providers, and brokers and developers, and they make a lot of money doing it. Also, AEP stands for American Education Properties, of which Ellis is also the CEO. His degree from the University of California, Berkeley, is in Political Economies of Industrial Societies. You can watch Ellis provide a history of charter school capital. Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's quite extraordinary. Um, uh, but, of course, we all know that here in Australia, Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Kennett put a lot of our public schools, which were public property, up for sale, and a lot of his, his mates made a lot of money developing his schools. But um, it just shows you what privatisation of public education is really about. It's got nothing to do with education or children, but a lot of... Uh, a lot of money making. 
But um, that's the, the negative side of it. Let's be positive. It's time for our great state school and Dale is going to do it. We, we apologise for Maddie this week. She's um, had to be called away to something much more important, uh, but she'll be back with us next week. So Dale's going to be Maddie and the Great State School this week. Over to you, Dale. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School of the Week is Kew High School. Uh, established in 1963, Kew High School is a high-performing co-ed school located in the inner eastern suburbs of Melbourne. The school proudly provides an outstanding holistic education to students of, of the local community with a current enrolment of approximately 1,100 students. Kew High School is a culturally diverse community with more than 30 different cultural backgrounds represented among the students. Uh, and their well-established international student program adds to that diversity, although during COVID times, who knows. Uh, their comprehensive learning and teaching program is student-centred, with high expectations set to encourage students to aspire, strive and achieve the best of their individual abilities. Kew High School is a comfortable and stimulating place to learn and work with excellent facilities and recreational spaces and an inclusive values-driven culture that fosters a strong sense of connectedness among the school community. At, at Kew High School, there's a focus on ensuring that every student experiences maximum learning growth through their time at the school. It's achieved through a holistic approach to planning and assessment with differentiated curriculum and a highly effective instructional model that frames their understanding of successful teaching and powerful learning. They promote intellectual engagement and provide opportunities for student self-awareness and self-regulation. They seek to empower students in the learning environment by asking them to direct and take responsibility for their learning through a range of formal and informal processes. They understand that students must be recognised as critical partners in this collaborative work of enhancing their own learning. That reminds me a lot of some of the Finnish models of education. So well done. Yeah. At uh, Q High School, they're proud of the fact that the students know that they can rely on a positive, connected, supportive environment and they seek to enhance their whole school culture of inclusion as they recognise that this is integral to student health and wellbeing. So well done uh, Q High School. Uh, the My School figures up on the ACARA website are interesting too. Uh, they, the year value of the school is 1,096 which is above the average of 1,000. So that means 43% of student families have an income in the upper quartile uh, of, of the uh, Australian community. 31% are from the second quartile, 17% are from the third quartile, and 8% are from disadvantaged families. 
So these figures indicate that a large proportion of the wealthy in Kew understand that public schools represent good value as they are confronted with the ridiculous fees of the wealthy private schools, especially in that area. There are 38% of kids from non-English speaking backgrounds uh, attending this school and 1% uh, are indi Indigenous students. Uh, the Australian Government provides 3.1 million and the State Government provides 12.8 million, uh, 12, sorry, 12.08 million. Uh, the parents paid 3 million in fees and raised 423,000 in 2020. All in all, it costs 16,000 to educate for the taxpayer to educate a child at this secondary school, which uh, when you look at the figures is pretty much right on the exact amount that you need. So that's, that's they're doing great things with just the right amount of cash. So well done, Q High School, you are our great state school of the week. Many thanks, uh, Dale, and uh, I think our time has come. And we've had a great time. We don't know. We hope that you've had a great time listening to us. Uh, we enjoy bringing you the information every week uh, and promoting and, and defending our great state schools. But uh, if you want to find out more about us, go to www.adogs.info. If you want to hear this program again, go to the 3CR website and there will be a podcast. Uh, and uh, our time is gone, so it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, here ten years dead, I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead, says Joe, but I ain't dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find your
Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. 